All right, we come now to the preaching of the Word of God. This is continuing to worship our great God together. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter uh, chapter 12, excuse me, Matthew 12. And we're going to call on the name of the Lord together. We're going to ask for God's help this morning to nourish our souls with his word. Let's pray. Lord, you are the great king. Lord, your word says that in that angelic council, in your throne room, you are greater than all who are around you, Lord. There's none holy like you, God. Your word tells us that your eyes are toward those who fear you and toward those who trust and hope in your steadfast love. And Lord, we cry out this morning that we hope in your steadfast love. Our only hope, Lord, is in your steadfast love. God, we ask that your eyes would be toward us this morning as your church, as your people. Lord, we pray that you would exalt today the power of your gospel. Your power unto salvation. And Lord, we pray that your people would be nourished today. God, we pray that you would fill your house with joy this morning. As we remember Jesus, as we lift up the glory of Christ. Fill us with all joy and peace in believing the gospel. Lord, come. Draw near to us, Lord, as we draw near to you. Through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're heading into Matthew chapter 12 this morning. And I want to mention just a few things before we read our passage together in Matthew 12. We're headed into a section of Matthew's gospel where Jesus is going to enter into three separate conflicts. Matthew 12 shows us a glimpse of Jesus Christ in conflict with his enemies, the same group of people. And one of the surprising things about reading the Bible for the first time, especially the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that the main enemies of Jesus Christ, it's not what you would expect, they're not irreligious people, who hate the word of God, the main enemies of Jesus during his earthly life was religious people who were zealous for the word of God, the Pharisees. We're told that these men were self-righteous, that they were loveless, that Jesus Christ stood in their very midst and they consistently rejected Jesus and his gospel of grace. And this chapter is going to show us they even charged the sinless one. How dare we with sin? They even charged Jesus Christ with sin. And we're going to see that their opposition to Jesus can be traced to a root cause. The problem of these men was in their hearts. They had wickedness in their hearts, and that heart problem caused them to reject Jesus Christ. What need do self-righteous men have for the Savior of sinners? They don't see their need for him, so they rejected Jesus. And one of the things that we learn about Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 is that our Lord Jesus is completely opposed to these men. 
He sets himself at odds with them. He's completely opposed to them. He opposes them. He stands against them. He's against their way of thinking. He's against their way of living. And so this morning, we want to be reminded for ourselves, we don't want to be found opposing Jesus Christ. And so we're going to lean in this morning as the enemies of Jesus are exposed in the first 14 verses of Matthew chapter 12. Now, one of the things that happens as we read and study the Word of God, and this is glorious, because the Word of God is living and it's not like any other book, as we read and study God's Word, it reads and studies us. As we search out Scripture, Scripture searches out us. It's, a, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides from joint and marrow. It's living and active. It's because it's God's Word. And so we want to lean in with this heart this morning that we want to see the things in our own life that we're not aware of. We want to study the Scriptures, but not like just any other book. We want the Scriptures to study us this morning. Therefore, I want to encourage you this morning, as we come to this text, I want to encourage you to say this word. Ah. This, this little, simple, two-letter English word. Now, I don't mean that ah that we would say when we drink a big, you know, mason jar of sweet tea on a hot Mississippi summer day. That's more like ah, okay? I mean this word ah that when we go to the doctor and the doctor takes out this little flashlight and, and you might feel a little sick and he says, open your mouth and say, you got it, ah. Uh, that's the posture that we want to come to God's word with. In the same way that we go to the doctor and we say, Doc, if there's anything back there in my throat, I want to know about it. I want to know the true state of my health right now. I want you to, to, to tell me like it is. And we want to come to God's word with that same mindset of, Lord, search me out. Expose me. Show me the true state of my soul. That's the prayer this morning. Ah, show me, Lord Jesus, about my heart. Now, as we study these Pharisees, that's an appropriate prayer, not only for unbelievers, but also for believers. Because the same heart, that Pharisaical heart, can reassert itself in the Christian life. Did you know that? That heart of hypocrisy. That heart of unbelief, that heart of empty religion, and we as followers of Jesus, we want that stuff scrubbed from us. We want to see it if it's there. We want God's word to expose it so that we can repent because we don't want to be found in opposition to the Jesus that we love. We love him. We, we don't want to stand in opposition to him. So we want to see the truth about ourselves this morning. We want a fresh reminder today of our own sin and of our need for the great one, the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's read God's word together this morning. The first 14 verses of Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, 
they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep if he falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. Now what we have in this passage are two separate scenes of the same controversy. The controversy is over the Jewish Sabbath and not over whether that Sabbath should be kept by the Jews. The controversy is over how should that Sabbath be kept by the Jews and what constitutes breaking the Jewish Sabbath. In the first scene, verses 1 through verse 8, Jesus' disciples are charged with Sabbath breaking because they pluck a handful of grain. This is like walking through a field, taking a handful of wheat or oats and eating a snack. And they're charged by the Pharisees as Sabbath breakers. In the second scene, verses 9 through 14, Jesus himself is charged as a Sabbath breaker of working on the Sabbath because he heals a man on the Sabbath day. Now, we're going to dive into the Sabbath command, the very root of this controversy, because this is a real commandment in God's word. It was a commandment that God gave to Israel. The first Jewish Sabbath is recorded for us in Exodus chapter 16, right after God brings his people out of Egypt through the Passover God gives this gift to Israel called the Sabbath. This is what Moses says in Exodus 16, 23. Moses said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept until morning. And so, in Exodus 16, God begins to rain down manna for his people. 
But he tells them man is only going to fall six days of the week. On the sixth day, there's going to be this double portion that's going to be gathered up for the seventh day. But the seventh day is going to be a holy Sabbath. This is what the Bible teaches. Now that word Sabbath comes from the verb form that means to rest. The Sabbath is just that noun form. It is a day of rest. Everything about the Sabbath revolves around this concept and this theme of rest. This commandment is repeated both times the Bible gives us the Ten Commandments. This happens twice, once in Exodus 20 and once in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And in both instances, the Sabbath command is the fourth command of the Ten. This is how it's said in Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 8. God's law says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And so God's law prohibited work or labor being done on the seventh day of the week that would be permissible on any other day of the week. But when we come to this controversy, the controversy is over what is to be, you know, categorized under this label of work and labor on the Sabbath. The Pharisees charged both Jesus and his disciples with sin. But what we find in Matthew's gospel is what was broken in these two scenes is not the commandment of God. But the traditions of men. And this is something that we've seen already in Matthew's gospel. That Jesus sets himself against the Pharisees. Specifically how they taught their traditions as the commandments of God. We mentioned this at length in Matthew chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus is, is setting his teaching in opposition with the teaching of the Pharisees. Now you have to understand who these enemies of Jesus are in Israel. These are the teachers of the law. In Israel, these are like the religious PhDs. Uh, th these are the experts of the law, the Pharisees. And in Israel, they became the stewards of Jewish oral tradition. These interpretations of the law of Moses... That the rabbis gathered together and they published them in a work that we know today as the Jewish Mishnah. This is the rabbinic tradition that went far beyond the actual commandments of scripture. It was like placing a human fence around the law of God. And worse than that, these traditions were exalted to a place side by side with God's holy commandments. And so the lines were being blurred in Jesus' day that to break the traditions was to under, be understood as breaking the commandment itself. Jesus broke the rabbinic traditions. His disciples broke the rabbinic traditions. There were 39 laws in the Mishnah that the rabbis had added to define exactly what it is that constitutes work or labor on the Sabbath day. 
And these laws went far beyond God's commandment in his word. All the disciples did was they ate a snack on the Sabbath day. For example, this, the law of God did not forbid you to eat on the Sabbath day. And yet these rigid traditions were placed upon the commandments of God and then put as a yoke on the neck of these disciples. And the Pharisees said, guilty to the disciples of Jesus. And then they turn and they say, guilty to Jesus himself. They had turned the Sabbath command that God intended to be a blessing for his people into a heavy burden, a yoke that was placed on the necks, of, attempted to be placed on the necks of their followers. Now, this is one of the places in the Bible where our chapter and verse divisions uh, can be misleading. Okay, That when the Bible was written... And for the first 1,500 years of church history, we didn't have Matthew chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13. We didn't have verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. These things were added later, and they're very helpful, but they're not inspired. And in fact, sometimes they obscure when you go from one chapter to another. Sometimes you're thinking, okay, new thought. But sometimes there's not a new thought at all. And if you remember how Matthew chapter 11 ended, it ended with the proclamation that Jesus was the kind of master with an easy yoke and a light burden. He announced, he said, come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. That yoke was a reference to the law, his standards. And we have, what do you know? We have a, a, this contradiction. The very next thing that happens in Matthew's gospel is we have a picture of these men whose yoke is not easy at all and their burden is not light at all. They're nothing like Jesus. They're, they're slamming the yoke down on everybody that, 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 that'll listen to them. And not only that, Jesus proclaimed himself at the end of Matthew chapter 11 as the one who will give rest to your soul. That was his call. He said, come to me. He said, I'll give rest to your soul. What do you know? The very next scene in Matthew's gospel is about the Sabbath, which everything about the Sabbath revolves around rest. And so we have, we have this flow in Matthew's gospel, the proclamation of Jesus Christ, and then a picture of a contrast. These men are nothing like him. One of the ways that his yoke is easy and his burden is light is how he approaches the Sabbath command and they're completely opposite of Jesus. The law did not forbid what Jesus or his disciples did. It didn't forbid healing on the Sabbath day. It didn't forbid eating a snack on the Sabbath day. And verse 6 plainly says this. Okay, In verse 6, he, uh, he, he says that they're guiltless. And what they've done. That means nothing to see here. No infraction. No breach of the commandment. They're guiltless. There is no sin here. And so he disagrees with them. But instead of simply refuting the Pharisees. Interpretation of the fourth commandment. Jesus takes this roundabout way with his enemies. And here's what I mean. It could have been as simple as this of... 
uh, excuse me, sir, your interpretation of the fourth commandment um, is wrong and you need to repent. Okay, you just hung a, hung a yoke on the necks of these men that God didn't put there. You're wrong about the fourth commandment and you need to repent. But Jesus takes this roundabout way that's going to expose not only that their interpretation is wrong, but he's going to take this roundabout way to expose more fundamentally their heart is wrong. In other words, they've made this error in exegesis in interpreting the law of God because they have this wickedness in their heart. In other words, Jesus is going to take these men full circle to show them not only do you have this intellectual error. You know, their problem is not, oops, I made an a, a intellectual mistake here. Their problem is moral. They have wickedness in their heart, and this wickedness is what caused them to distort the law of God. And so you see Jesus begin to take on his enemies in verse 3. And I want us to remember, who are these men? These men are the teachers in Israel. These men are the experts in the law and the prophets. Nobody knows the Bible better than the Pharisees, or at least they thought. And then look at what Jesus says in verse 3. He starts this conversation in this confrontation with these words. He says, have you not read? Now I want you to think about how offensive that would be. It's not offensive to somebody who's never read the Bible. You know, you say, have you not read this? They say, no, man, I had not read it. You know, guilty as charged. I really haven't read that. But think about how those words would be received of someone who has read the law hundreds of times, thousands of times. Have you not read this, Jesus says? These men could recall large portions of the Torah at will, at memory, and yet the Savior, the teacher, the true teacher, stands before them. And this is, this is biting sarcasm from Jesus. He says, you skipped this part? Like you never read this part before? And he's going to allude to two different places in the Old Testament. This is uh, the teacher calling the Pharisees of Israel to his school. This is like school is now in session. Have you not read this stuff? And then he pivots to two different places in the Old Testament. The first is 1 Samuel 21. Jesus references a story in 1 Samuel 21 where David is fleeing from King Saul. And in 1 Samuel 21, there's a murder plot on David's life. Saul is going to kill him. Jonathan tells him about it. And so uh, David flees, flees Jerusalem. He has you know, no, no time to prepare. He flees with nothing. He goes to Ahimelech, the priest, at a place called Nob, and he asks Ahimelech for weapons and for food. And in that story, Ahimelech responds that the only bread that is available is, is what is called the bread of the presence. Now, that's a reference to the presence of God. The bread, the ceremonial loaf that was set in the presence of God by the priest changed out weekly and it was 
only for the priest to consume. And you can read about the bread of the presence specifically in Leviticus 24, verses 5 through 9. It was lawful only for the priest, which is exactly what Jesus says. But in that story, Ahimelech gives that bread of the presence. David takes that bread of the presence. David eats that bread of the presence. And Jesus says, no sin. What do you think about that? Did you miss that part? That's kind of the, que- the question here. Like, uh, you're charging with sin, but what about this in the Bible? Jesus gives a second example. Have you not read? And then he refers to the Old Testament again. Remember, these men were supposed to be the experts in the Old Testament. Jesus says, what about this? And in verse 5, he mentions the work that priests do in the temple on the Sabbath day. And you can read about this in Numbers 28, verses 9 and 10. The law required sacrifices every Sabbath day. Somebody had to offer those sacrifices, and this was labor. I mean, you're taking hundreds of pounds of animal. You are uh, 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 butchering them. This is bloody work. This is sweaty work. You're, you're starting fires. You're offering up you know, burnt offerings and, and atonement offerings in the temple. I mean, this is like take three showers you know, when you're done kind of work. And Jesus says, what about that? That happens every week. And again, Jesus says, no sin. What about that? Problem with, you know, what they're doing is the Bible. This is, this is Jesus' point here. Now, we have to think carefully about exactly how these two examples refute the Pharisees. And we have to think about this carefully because that first example has nothing to do with the Sabbath. Did you catch that? Like we're talking about the fourth commandment and Sabbath and Jesus talks about these priestly laws about the bread of the presence. And, and so you got to think, Jesus, what's going on here? How does this refutation of your enemies, how is it working here? And so both of these allusions to the Old Testament, they don't both refer to the Sabbath, but they have one thing in common. Both examples have in common that they are dealing with ceremonial law. First example, laws that are, were applied only to the priest. Second example, laws that applied to temple service and the priesthood. Ceremonial law. Now, that word, ceremonial law, is a word that is used to describe parts of the Old Testament that were only for Israel... And only to be practiced under the old covenant age. Only for Israel and only for the old covenant age. Things like sacrifices. Things like dietary laws. Things like feast days. Things like priesthood. And what we're going to see before we're finished is things like the Sabbath. Now, ceremonial law is a word that doesn't show up in the Bible. And sometimes you'll hear, you know, a refutation uh, of using language like this, of, hey, that word, you know, doesn't show up in the Bible. But that's actually a problem because we don't do theology and doctrine at the level of words 
We do theology and doctrine at the level of concepts. That same refutation is used with the word Trinity. I don't know if you ever heard this before, but some people have this big problem of the word Trinity is never in the Bible, uh, uh, so I don't have to believe it. Wait a second. You're not off the hook. Is the concept there? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are, are called God, and yet the Bible says there's one God. So you have these three persons, yet this one God. And what do you call it? Because the church for 2,000 years calls it Trinity, which means triunity, which seems to be a pretty good word to sum up this concept of the threeness and the oneness of God. You see, we do it at the level of concept here. And so even though the word ceremonial law doesn't show up, this concept does that there are these categories of laws in the Old Covenant that are not dragged into the New Covenant. Jesus fulfills them and they're no longer binding on the people of God. Sometimes you'll hear a rebuttal that sounds like this. Of we shouldn't bust the law up into separate pieces. You know, the law is a unity. The old covenant is a unity. And you should keep the whole thing. You know, if you're under that covenant, you should keep the whole thing. True enough, but this is also true that, that the Bible itself makes distinctions between different commandments and different law. And we see this twice at least in the New Testament, in Matthew 23, later in this same gospel, Jesus refers to what he calls the weighty matters of the law. Now, now that's instructive, right? Like if there's weighty stuff, what does that mean? That means there, there's this other, other category of commandments that doesn't belong in this category of weightier matters. And if you go back and read that passage in Matthew 23, 23, Jesus refers to tithing as an example of lesser matters and justice, mercy, and the love of God as the weighty matters of the law. How do you distinguish these things? The church for a long time has distinguished this as ceremonial law versus the moral law of God. The Apostle Paul also does something like this in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19. Listen to this. He says, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. And then he says, But keeping the commandments of God. It's like, wait a second. Is somebody going to tell Paul that a circumcision is a commandment of God? Like, like, like is this a mistake? And this is another example that he's separating apart Parts of the law are different than other parts of the law. We have these ceremonial things that have fallen away. They were given to Israel only under the old covenant. Things like circumcision. But we have the moral law of God that was there before the tablets were given to Moses. I mean, think about this. We didn't have to wait until Exodus 20 to know that murder is sin. You on board with that? Like it was a sin against God. God would judge you for murder if you committed murder before Exodus 20 or during the Old Covenant age or after the Old Covenant age. The moral law of God proceeds from the very nature of God and it's always binding. But there are these other commandments in God's word that don't function this way. And you need to understand how this works as a disciple of Jesus, this distinction between moral and ceremonial 
law. And the reason I say that is you need to know, disciple of Jesus, how to refute the blasphemer. Okay? Say, so what do you mean? CNN is the world's worst about this. Okay? You can expect it. It's almost like a countdown clock. You know, some moral issue makes its way into the public square. Let's just, for example, say it's homosexuality. And they have, you know, this Christian perspective uh, on, you know, the CNN show weighing in on what the Word of God says about homosexuality. And then all of a sudden, it's like, cue the countdown clock. Enter the blasphemer. And the blasphemer says what? uh, Sir, do you eat shrimp? And the Christian says, yes, I do. And the blasphemer says, aha, you're a hypocrite. The Bible says that eating shellfish is sin, and you just set that to the side, but you just rail against homosexuality as this is a sin. You're a hypocrite. See, you're picking and choosing. And this is presented over and over again to Christians as this gotcha, like this aha, you know, uh, like you're treating the Bible like a buffet line, you know, picking and choosing what's bonding. And actually, what pretends to be, you know, like, uh, uh, I, man, I really understand the Bible. All these Christians are just chopping it up in pieces. Actually, it displays ignorance to the Bible. It displays that you uh, have missed the main point of the whole Bible. If you don't know how to distinguish between what falls away and what stays, that means that you really don't understand the main point of the Bible. What is the main point of the Bible? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the main point of the revelation of God. Jesus, all, there, there are all these Old Testament types and shadows that point to what? They point to Jesus. And then this fundamental, world-changing, new creation thing happens when Jesus enters into this world and he fulfills all these shadows. In other words, you don't need the shadows anymore. The Savior is standing right in front of you. You need to understand this. That a failure to grasp that change is really a failure to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you, Christian, to learn these distinctions. Learn how to refute the blasphemer. Okay? It'll save your bacon in more ways than one. Somebody's going to get that joke at about two this afternoon. All right. With both of these citations of the Old Testament... Jesus shows us that certain laws in the Old Testament can be set aside in certain circumstances. This never happens with moral law. In both examples, Jesus shows us that ceremonial law was set aside without guilt. An example, David's in great need. He was allowed to eat the priestly bread. No sin. All right, a way to summarize what Jesus is showing these men is this. Mercy triumphed over ceremonial law. That's how I want to summarize this. Mercy triumphed over ceremonial law. This is exactly what Jesus says when he turns the corner in verse 7 and he indicts them. He says, mercy over sacrifice. I mean, this is what he says. Mercy is moral law. Sacrifice, again, is ceremonial law. Jesus says, mercy over sacrifice. 
And then this is where he turns the corner. He gives these beautiful examples that, that, you know, man, you cannot account for these places in God's word with your doctrine. But then he turns the corner and says, and by the way, you would have never made this mistake if you knew what this meant. And he quotes Hosea 6.6 and he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is an indictment by Jesus. Tells him you would have never made this intellectual exegesis error if this moral wickedness were not in your heart. They had no, no category for mercy being the weighty matter of the law. Think about that. Jesus is going to explicitly say that in Matthew 23. They're worried about the, 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 the letters and they're missing the weighty matters of the law of God. And Jesus calls them merciless men. Men who don't love mercy. They don't show mercy. They don't even think they need mercy. They have failed to obey God's command in Micah 6.8. Where the Lord commands us to love mercy. They didn't love mercy. Or they would have never made this error. And not only are they indicted as merciless, Jesus also indicts these men as hypocrites. And we see this in verse 11. In that second scene of Sabbath controversy, after Jesus heals the man with a paralyzed hand, he exposes their hypocrisy with these words. He says, which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? And the obvious answer is he's appealing to this common ground that everybody shares there. That if your sheep falls into a pit, you, you, you lift it out. Jesus appeals to that and then he says this. Yet how much more value is a man than a sheep? So I want you to imagine the hypocrisy of pretending to be a lover of God and neighbor. Only to have Jesus Christ show you. That you care more about a farm animal than an image bearer of God. And you're looked at all around the land as, as the teacher of the law, the revered one. And Jesus says you love farm animals more than you love image bearers of God. Because of their self-righteousness, these men did not receive Jesus' proclamation of his own greatness. And it's not because Jesus didn't tell them who he was. He does it twice in this passage. He proclaims his greatness explicitly. But they're blind to his glory. In verse 6, Jesus says, Something greater than the temple is here. And I want us to think carefully about that this morning. That reveals the glory of our Savior. He said, Something greater than the temple is here. This is a reference to his appearance. In other words, when Jesus comes into the world, something greater than the temple arrives. And what is the temple? The temple was the dwelling place of God in Israel. The temple was the place of atonement. The temple was the place of offering. The temple was the place of worship. And Jesus is announcing something better than that. We're back in this category again. That was the shadow. 
The real deal has arrived. That was pointing to something else. Now something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is pointing to himself. The true dwelling place of God. The true place of atonement. The true place of worship is Jesus Christ. He's greater than the temple. Christians don't need a temple. Christians have a temple. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus often compared himself to a temple, especially in John's gospel. One of the things he said in John's gospel is destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And his hearers thought he was talking about that Jerusalem temple. But Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. The meeting place between God and man. The only mediator between God and man. Our Lord Jesus Christ. He says greater than the temple. But he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 8. He says the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this is an amazing claim when you understand what the Sabbath is. We're told several times in the Old Testament that the Sabbath belongs to God. He calls it my Sabbath. He calls it my holy day. It belongs to Him. And yet this teacher from Nazareth comes on the scene and he says, Oh, by the way, I am the Lord of God's holy day. This is a full-throated confession of Jesus' deity. In other words, how does this work? How in the world could he be Lord of God's day? And this is his glory. Because Jesus is God incarnate. He is God in the very midst of his disciples and his enemies. He's Lord of the Sabbath because he's God in the flesh. And that second scene shows us not only does he claim this authority, he demonstrates it. In verse 13, he speaks four words to a man with a paralyzed hand. And he says, stretch out your hand. So this is not just like somebody just saying stuff. He says it and then he demonstrates it right in their presence. And we're told that he was healed by the power of the Lord of the Sabbath. Yet, in an amazing display of hardness of heart, these Pharisees will not receive Jesus as the Christ. Now think about that. Right in front of them, a miracle just happened. We have willful hardness of heart. And this is going to continue in Matthew 12, that Jesus is going to cast out demons. And they're going to say, they're going to see it. It's going to be in their presence. And instead of uh, uh, bowing down and calling him king, they're going to say, Jesus, you are satanic. That's what's wrong with you. You're a Sabbath breaker. You're an agent of Satan. We have a willful rejection by these enemies of Jesus, of his glory. And that last verse is the first hint of how this gospel is going to end. Instead of joining him as the Lord of the Sabbath, these men plot to kill him. How they might destroy Jesus. In verse 14. 
This is where I want us to remember that the goal of our time this morning is not only to read the Word of God, but to be read by the Word of God. In other words, not only to know, man, this is all the things that they had wrong. I want us to understand that this gives us a glimpse into our own sinful heart so that we can repent, so that it can be scrubbed clean from us. I believe this passage gives us two warnings for our lives regarding the Pharisees. And the first is the way they handle Scripture. I want you to feel a warning this morning from God's Word in the way that you handle the Scripture. Now, commandments are given so that they are obeyed. And we, all of us, are accountable to God to be doers of His Word. But there's a warning for us here that the Pharisees elevated their tradition to the same level as Scripture itself. In other words, they elevated their interpretation, their theological tradition, and they lost that divide between God's holy, sacred, God-breathed, authoritative word and their man-made standards. And not only that, they bound other people with their traditions and with their man-made standards instead of with the Bible itself. And I want you to feel warned about this. I want you to feel warned about it. I want you to feel warned about elevating your preferences of how you think things should be done and for you to feel this holy hesitation in your soul that when you indict others for being wrong, which that needs to happen, that you're taking extra care to humble yourself and make sure you're not placing that yoke of human tradition on the, on, on the necks of disciples of Jesus and that you're coming with the scriptures. Now you're coming with the scriptures. I hope you can see how easily that this can happen today and how dangerous it is for the church of Jesus Christ. Unnecessary strictness. Using confessions and catechisms on the level of scripture. Exalting a method of obedience as the method of obedience. And when another Christian doesn't line up exactly where you are, you say, boom, guilt, sin. And we all need this holy fear that we don't say guilty where the Lord Jesus says guiltless. No guilt here. Move along. In other words, we don't want to find ourselves opposing the Lord that we love and serve. So we need to feel this warning in the way that we handle God's word. That warning of not setting ourselves up as lords in the church. But claiming Jesus' lordship in the church. He rules the church by his scepter, his word. Not by human traditions. We want these things scrubbed from us. We want fresh conviction from the Holy Spirit. There's an extended um, chapter in the book of Romans that deals extensively with these things. I'll, I'll read a portion of Romans 14 beginning in verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. 
Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. When we obey those commandments and the word of God, we are repenting of the sins that the Pharisees refused to acknowledge in their own life. We have a second warning. This warning is about our hearts. We're told in this passage not only that these men mishandle Scripture, Jesus tells them why they did it. Isn't that so insightful? Like, you don't have to, you don't have to run around, you know, just chopping fruit off of a tree. You can go to the very root of your problem, and Jesus says it's a heart problem. One of the most dangerous places to be spiritually is to find yourself indifferent to the mercy of God. And when you find that state in your own heart, you need to have spiritual sirens just screaming at you, danger ahead, danger ahead. One of the things that you'll realize is this way of thinking of not loving mercy can only grow in a soul that is blind to its own need of grace. In other words, you could say it this way, a self-righteous man is the same thing as a merciless man. And you could say it backwards. If, if this man weren't self-righteous and he saw his own need for mercy, he would be quick to bend that mercy out to other people. He would love mercy if he would just see his own need for the forgiveness of his sin. His own need to be scrubbed clean. He wouldn't assert himself as morally superior. He would jump in that same line, that same group with sinners that need the grace of God. They go hand in hand. To be self-righteous and to be merciless are one and the same. Which means, this is so helpful, that one of the best things that you can do for your own soul is remember often, listen, your great sin. Your great wickedness before God. Because we're in this constant battle. And the things that we see in this world, we're in this battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we're constantly assaulted with, we're not that bad. Look at what other people do. We're not that bad. We're not that bad. And one of the best reminders that you can give yourself is that apart from the grace of God, you're nothing. You have no righteousness, not even a little bit. You have no wisdom apart from Jesus. You need Jesus to cover you in every way. One of, the, one, one of the best things that you can do for your soul daily is to preach that gospel to yourself that you need Jesus. Just as much today as the moment you first believed the gospel. In other words, learn the supremacy of of mercy. Paul gives us a trustworthy saying in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He says this, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. Now that's not just rhetorical flair that a holy apostle 
would see himself as the chief of sinners, as the foremost of sinners. And I want to challenge you with that fight to see yourself like that often and even daily. Fight to see yourself as the chief of sinners in great need of the mercy of God. And one of the effects that will have in your life is you'll love mercy because you'll see how much you need it. And finally, how do we respond to this passage? This passage is a call to us of the greatness of Jesus Christ and our need to rest in Him. Jesus is the true Sabbath. I'll say it that way. The Sabbath was a shadow in the Old Testament that has a termination point. It's like a sign pointing somewhere. And then when that somewhere arrives, the sign goes away and we bask in the thing signified by the sign. We don't have the sign anymore. Sign has served its purpose. Jesus Christ is the true Sabbath. And there is a sense where the whole Christian life should be Sabbath keeping. In the sense of we rest from our works in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, he's the Matthew eleven twenty eight Savior that gives rest to our weary, sin-burdened souls. The Sabbath was a shadow that pointed to Christ. It was a ceremonial sign of the old covenant that God made with Israel. In this passage, the Sabbath is in the same category of laws as the priestly law about the showbread and the temple laws about priestly service. Sabbath's in that same category. Jesus' argument doesn't make any sense if they're not in that same category. Ceremonial law that served this purpose, pointed to Christ. This is why, if you ever wondered this, this is why Jesus handles the fourth commandment differently than the other nine of the Ten Commandments. We don't have any examples of him handling thou shalt not murder like this. He handles it differently because it's in a different category of the law of God. The Jewish Sabbath was a weekly picture that pointed forward to a deeper reality, gospel rest. Do you know that that's what you need more than anything else? You might be really tired and think, man, I just need a nap. I've been watching kids. It feels like nonstop for three weeks. Hadn't had a chance to breathe. Man, I really need to kick my feet up. I really need a nap. Even 10,000 times more than that, you need rest for your sin-weary soul. You need gospel rest. You need rest that only comes from the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so we keep the Sabbath today. How? By resting in Jesus. By believing his gospel, by ceasing from all of our works to be right with God and resting in our Savior. This is why the Apostle Paul says this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. In other words, when somebody comes with, hey man, if you really believe the word of God, you would keep these dietary laws. Hey man, if you really believe the word of God, you'd keep these feast days. Hey man, if you really believe the word of God, you'd keep the Sabbath. Paul says, don't let anybody do that to you. You're free. It is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Shadow, set aside, the substance is 
here. This is exactly what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3. This is beautiful. That this gospel rest that's been in the Bible from Genesis chapter 2, we finally have the end revealed to us, the point of it all. Hebrews 4, verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. Did you know that? That believing the gospel is glorious. And there are 10,000 things that happen to you as a new convert when you believe the gospel you don't know anything about. And one of those things is that when you believe the gospel, you enter into God's rest. The finished work. You enter in, you rest in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And you get rest for your souls. Listen, forever. Forever and ever and ever. And so what should we do? We should take our weary souls to Jesus Christ. We should rest in Jesus. And the Christian life is not supposed to feel like exerting yourself, exerting yourself in your own strength, in your own strength. Man, uh, maybe God loves me today. I'll try harder tomorrow. It's supposed to feel like I am, I am ceasing from my striving and my works righteousness to be right with God. And I am resting in my Savior and His perfect Work, the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And if you are a Christian, Jesus intends for you to live in this state of soul called rest. That you really believe it, that you really uh, take it by faith. That when your Savior hung on a cross as a substitute in your place, and when he said this with his dying breath, it is finished, he really means it. There's nothing else left for you to do to be right with God. Receive your rest. Your Savior has accomplished the work of salvation. The Lord of the Sabbath. Let's rest in him. And we honor him as the Lord of the Sabbath when we rest in him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for help this morning to rightly understand your word. Lord, we pray that you would truly search us out by your word. And Lord, we pray that you would encourage souls all over this room this morning with your sufficiency, Lord Jesus. Give us fresh joy today in the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.